please bow in prayer with me. Lord, the words that these men have sung have cut to our heart. All we can do is continue to pray, to cry out to Jesus to help us. Lord, our hearts just uh, are laid bare as we think of the many people in this world who are suffering. We cry out to you because you're the God of the universe and you're a God who cares. You're a God of compassion and you have pity on us. And you hear prayers. And so we beg you this morning uh, to touch our hearts. We pray that the power of your word would, would open our souls. We pray that we'd be able to see into eternity and see Christ for who he is. We pray, Lord, that you would help us see the need of the people around us, whether it's, it's the people in our own house, our neighbor, people in this room, or the lost in the community, or whether it's uh, someone in Bangladesh. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts of compassion that is moved to do something for your kingdom. We ask your blessing. Lord, we remind you that your word will not return void, so we pray that you would make it happen today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Powerful song, eh? Well, Marcus Garvey was a Jamaican activist. He died in 1940. Uh, He was very influential in civil rights movement back then. He was a precursor to uh, uh, Martin Luther King. When Martin Gar, Gar, uh, Mar- when <clears throat> Marcus Garvey was a young boy, his father took him with him to work. See, his father had been a slave, and at this point in his life, his father was a mason, and uh, one of his duties was, was digging graves, so his dad took him with him. To the cemetery. And uh, he threw this little guy into a freshly dug grave and left him there. Well, you can imagine what that would be like. A little bitty kid, six foot high wall, cry out to his dad, and his dad wouldn't listen, didn't come, left him. Very cruel way to treat a child, strange way, in fact. You see, Mr. Garvey had been a slave, and he learned something about this world, and he learned this, that this world is extremely cruel, and he wanted his son to learn something, that you cannot trust anyone, and you must depend on yourself. He wanted his son to grow up to be completely and totally self-sufficient, and this was one of the ways he thought he would teach his son a lesson. Well, Mr. Garvey had something right, and that is, our world is cruel, our world is harsh, and like the song said, angry guns are at work in our our country, even. Mr. Garvey had that right. He knew that we lived in a broken world, and I would agree with him, we do, but like Mr. Garvey, we're kind of, we're just like him. You may say, well, that's never happened to me. Uh, I, in fact, talked to a young man uh, several years ago. His father took him and his family and lined them up in their backyard, spread eagle like this, foot to foot, mom and sons, 
and his dad brought a gun and shot in between these kids and his wife's feet one at a time to keep them in line, you see? That's the cruel world we live in, and some of you have had horrific experiences as well like that. And Mr. Garvey was trying to help his, his uh, son deal with it. Well, I don't know what your experience is, but all of us end up in the pit of a grave of depravity and need deliverance. And there is a biblical way to look at this world condition. And here's what I would like to offer you today as a big picture perspective of what we're going to talk about today. Jesus Christ came back to this world and he is coming to take over again to rule this kingdom. And he is going to take a broken world and restore it to shalom, which means the way it used to be, the way it was designed to be. At some point in time, we are going to experience a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. But until then, that's the not yet part. We are in this kingdom, the kingdom of Satan. And I want to offer this passage to you to help us how to think, to see how to think about this world. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 9. And uh, please stand with me if you would. I want to read from chapter 9 of Matthew. Matthew 9 gives us a different way to look at and interpret a very evil, difficult, sinful, Satan-ruled kind of world. Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You may be seated. Here's the big idea of this text. Matthew has written this book to mainly a Jewish audience to try and convince them that Jesus is who he is. And this text tells us that Jesus is a pursuing king. He has come to pursue his harvest, and he has done it by portraying immense and tremendous power, and he is also displaying great compassion in that pursuit of his harvest. And in that pursuit of his harvest, he's asking his disciples to pray. Before I unpack that, I would like to just back up and give you a perspective on what Matthew has already taught and what he's trying to demonstrate in this, in this particular text. You see, Matthew is convinced that Jesus is Messiah. Matthew presents Jesus as king. He wants his Jewish audience to know that, and so he starts with Abraham and proves the lineage of Jesus all the way up until Joseph. He talks about a virgin birth. 
He talks about John the Baptist's ministry proclaiming Christ. He also describes Jesus' baptism when God speaks and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, Matthew is convinced, and he wants you and I to be convinced, that this is the King. He goes on to talk about how God displays His power through Jesus' ministry, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. And so what I want you to start with is let's not just blow past the word Jesus. This is King Messiah with uh, transcendent power. And Matthew isn't the only one that talks about this. Remember that Mark presents Jesus as a suffering servant. Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man. And Luke also, or Matthew describes Jesus' perfect response to the temptation in the wilderness. Perfect man. John proclaims Jesus as God himself. And so in the text, when it says Jesus went throughout, don't miss the fact that this is God and King. This is perfect man coming as a suffering servant with gut-wrenching passion for you. That's who we're talking about. And I believe, especially as Christians, we have so many Bibles and so many Christian uh, books and radio stations and so forth that we forget who this is that we're talking about. And Jesus, first point of your outline, Jesus is a pursuing king. This king, Christ, is coming looking for his harvest. And he goes to great lengths to pursue. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. You see here the word all. Imagine if all you had, no Nikes, just sandals, and you were going to try and personally reach three million people personally. But from what I have read, that's the, uh, estimates say that Jesus literally preached and teached and touched three million people while he was pursuing his kingdom on this earth. You see, God is a pursuing God. He gave his son to come and proclaim his message to a very, very broken world so that we would not grow up thinking that we must be self-sufficient You see, Mr. Garvey's answer was become self-sufficient. The kingdom of the gospel says, no, get off of self. You cannot rely on self. You must rely on King Christ. And his message is a powerful message, and it went throughout the entire villages. Matthew 4, it says, Galilee, best estimates, at least 3 million people. Why is that important to you today? Well, Some of you are running from Christ. Some of you are really discouraged. And some of you just wonder if he cares. And you see evidence here, of stunning evidence, that God has gone to great lengths to find every single human being. God, your king, your Christ, this God-man is a pursuing king. I would argue that everyone here this today, every believer in this room today, is here because God pursued you. 
when I was 21 years old, um, I had kind of, not kind of, I had come to the end of myself. I had lost uh, several thousand dollars in a, in a business venture that I had started, and the building it was in burned down. My girlfriend and I broke up after two and a half years, and I was, uh, I was pretty lost. I was kind of a loner the way it was anyway, but uh, <clears throat> now I had, I had nowhere to go, and so I did what I often uh, did when I was uh, lonely or depressed. I took my guitar and went and sat on the banks of a, a creek in the woods. So one Sunday, sunny Sunday afternoon in July of 1975, I found myself playing a guitar all, all by myself. And as I was playing, I heard a voice. Somebody called me. I turned around. It was my cousin Joan. And uh, she came and sat down beside me. And she reached out and she touched me. She told me how much she loved me. She told me that she'd been praying for me for a long time. She knew I was hurting. And she was begging me to consider Christ. Well, I was a skeptic at that point in my life. At 21 years old, I'd watched enough religion fall apart. I didn't want any part of it. Uh, it didn't, there was no power in what, the religion that I had seen. She asked me to come to a Bible study, and I, I wasn't impressed. I wasn't interested, but she sweetened the deal by asking me to come to dinner before the Bible study. I'm not advising bribery, but it worked. So I went to her house that night, uh, that Thursday night, to go to ISU Bible study, and I walked into this room, and uh, I didn't know if she was going to have her roommates, and I saw the most beautiful woman in the world, and I've been able to live with her the last 37 years. I chased her for the next two years. <laughs> You'll have to ask her. She doesn't remember me too much that day, but I remember, that. I remember what she was wearing. I went to Bible study that night, and I heard a, just the most powerful, dynamic message of the gospel I had heard to that date in my life. And here I was, the only, I was obviously the only unbeliever in the room. There was probably 150 kids in this room, college kids, and this guy was speaking right to me. It felt like he could read the message in my heart. It scared me. Uh, I got out of there as quick as I could because I could see the speaker was trying to find me. He wanted to talk to me, and I didn't want any part of it. But, <clears throat> praise God, three weeks later, uh, August 18th, uh, 1975, about 7.30 at night, I broke. And I gave my life to Christ. I admitted I was a sinner. I trusted His death to pay for my sin. I trusted His perfect life to be my perfection, and my life has never been the same. Radically changed. Why? Because a pursuing God saved my cousin Joan and filled her with compassion for me, and she became a pursuer. And she found me. How she found me, I don't know. But she found me because she cared for me. And because she cared for me, I heard the message she brought to me. I listened because I knew her heart for me was true. And I would, I would say this, that a major takeaway from today's message is that if you have been pursued of Jesus Christ, then you ought to be intentionally pursuing other people for the sake of the kingdom, because your heart breaks for the unsaved. That's, I believe, a takeaway from today.
Jesus is a pursuing king. Well, he came to pursue and to tell us he is king. Well, in order to be a king, you have to have the power and the the credentials to be a king. And he demonstrated that. In this text, Matthew is emphasizing that Jesus was teaching, Jesus was proclaiming, and Jesus was healing. And that was demonstrating the power. So the next point in your outline, you see here, is that King Christ demonstrates power of his kingdom. And he displays it by the way he teaches, what he proclaims, and how he heals. So he starts teaching in the synagogues. The scripture says he went out and, and he taught in their synagogues. Well, in, in, that, in that day, the, it was customary for anybody of prominence to read the scriptures in, uh, on the Sabbath day. So Jesus took advantage of that, and he stands up in the synagogue on a, on a uh, Sabbath morning, and they bring him the scrolls. And you know the story. It's told in Luke chapter 4. He stands up. He finds, he looks in a scroll. I don't know how you do that. How do you find, when well, there's no chapter numbers, unroll the scroll, but he found it. Here's what Jesus read. I like to call this just as Jesus' mission statement. The Spirit of the Lord, look, up, look at me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord. You know what he's saying to these Jews? They knew exactly what he was saying. These Jews were understood that he, um, Jesus, was saying God had sent him and that he himself was the Messiah. <clears throat> Notice here in the text, Luke chapter 4, this started a riot. They were so offended, they tried to kill him. Jesus, do you think he didn't know that? Jesus knew that they were going to be offended, but he didn't, he didn't soft pedal his message. Why? Because he's a pursuing king, and he wants people to worship him because he is worthy of worship. <clears throat> they rejected him. Jesus' teaching is offensive. And I want to challenge you, all of you here today, I would argue that every one of you are just like I am, that sometimes you get offended by what Jesus has to say. And we need to be extremely, extremely sensitive to that because he is king. And we want to submit to what he has to say. He demonstrates his power through teaching in the synagogue. And the, you'll look through the scriptures and you will see three things about Jesus that is especially poignant. They said, where did he get this wisdom? Isn't this Joseph's kid? So you see, Jesus has profound wisdom. They were awed by his words. His words had power. All he had to do was say the word, and people were healed, right? And the third thing is he had a stunning power in his works. Three things about Jesus proclaimed his power, his wisdom, his words, his works. And Matthew goes to great lengths to lay them out so you see them and believe that he is Christ. But you and I, know, we know this intellectually. But I would argue on Tuesday night at 9.30 when the text comes and you don't like the news, you wrestle because you think Jesus ought to be doing something different than what he's doing. Jesus demonstrates 
who he is, and he starts right there in his, his temple and proclaims that I am sent from God. And they try to kill him. But he doesn't stop there. He starts preaching. Back to the text. He says, he says, he went throughout all the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now listen, listen to this. Proclaim means this, means to preach uh, or, or to give news like a herald. And in those days, a herald was a, 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 a runner who would run to ahead of, uh, say for example, if your king had an army that was sent out to battle, the king would be waiting for news from the battle zone. A herald would be sent out maybe daily back to the kingdom back to tell the king what's going on. And so king is looking for the runner to bring the news, the herald. The herald brings the news. And Jesus is a proclaimer, meaning he's heralding the news of the kingdom. <clears throat> but the word proclaim is bigger than that. This is a stunning definition, an incredibly powerful word. In one, in one word, the word proclaim says this. It always means formality. Jesus speaks in formal language, gravity, that means it's extremely serious, and an authority, listen to that, an authority which must be listened to. When Jesus proclaims his message of the king, it comes with formality, gravity, and authority. And listen, what else it says is, it must be listened to and obeyed. The gospel of the kingdom is a poignant message that demands our attention and warns us that we must obey. That's not the end of the definition. It brings eternal accountability to all who hear it. That scares me. That's sobering. And if that doesn't rattle your cage, I don't know. You need to check your pulse. Jesus preaching is profoundly important and we must listen to what he has to say and he is demonstrating that he is a king worthy of listening to because his wisdom surpasses any human wisdom his words are incredibly powerful and poignant and his works demonstrate that he has power over everything in this world he goes throughout all the world proclaiming his power of his kingdom What is a kingdom? What is a kingdom? What's your definition? Uh, you got a, a definition of the word kingdom? It's easy to think about. Two parts to the word kingdom. King is the ruler, and dom is short for domain. Jesus is bringing the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming himself to be king, and he is calling you to become Part of his kingdom, his domain, hearts and land. Hearts and land. He wants to rule over your heart, and he is going to come and destroy this world and make a new one. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is already here. There's this already and not yet motif that we struggle with. 
Jesus came to preach a kingdom of the hearts of men, and he promises to come back to create a new kingdom, a new heaven, a new, a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. I cannot wait to the time when I don't have to deal with sin. Are you that way? Do you get excited about not dealing with sin anymore? I get weary of seeing the consequences of sin in my life, and I, it pains me to see people like you suffer when other people sin against you. And I'm looking forward to deliverance from that in this not-yet kingdom that's coming. Jesus came to preach and proclaim the power of his kingdom. And we see in this text here that doctrine matters to Jesus. So doctrine matters to us. And doctrine offends. And I want to challenge you to be careful how you respond to God's word. Because the people that were offended at his teaching and preaching were the Pharisees, the Jews, the Gentiles. Even his disciples were offended at his teaching. Remember? He said, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And they said many of his disciples were offended and left him and never came back. Doctrine is important and doctrine is offensive. And I challenge you to be careful how you respond to his doctrine. Well, he, he proclaims his power by teaching and preaching, proclaiming. He also proclaims his power by healing. Back to the text. Teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. What is this really saying? Can you imagine? Jesus went throughout all of Galilee and healed every single disease and affliction. Everything. The spectrum from A to Z was covered. <clears throat> so what does that mean? Jesus healed spiritual problems. He eradicated eternal destiny kind of problems. He has power over your eternal destiny. He healed physical problems. He healed lepers, blind people. He had power over death. Dead people came back to life. He also healed emotional problems and psychological problems, if you look at the text. There is not one problem that Jesus did not heal as he proclaimed the power of his kingdom. Remember this. Be careful when you are offended, when you suffer. Because here's what happens we think about this great big king who has all this great big power and yet I've got a problem that he's not solving. And what we tend to do is say he doesn't care or he must not be God or he's not paying attention to me. John the Baptist had that same problem. Remember? He sent his friends to Jesus are you the king? Or do we wait for another? Why was he doing that? The scripture doesn't tell us, but a little sanctified imagination. Bear with me here. If I were John the Baptist, here's what I would think. Hmm. He's healing lepers. Dead people come back to life. Uh, blind people see the deaf hear, the, the lame walk. I'm his cousin. 
He doesn't even love me enough to come and visit me. You've got to be kidding. He's looking at the door on his cell door, the lock on his cell door, thinking with one thought, King Jesus could make this lock disappear. Why doesn't he do it? Are you really the Messiah? Or do we look for another? You know what Jesus said? Go tell John. Dead people live. Blind people see. Lame people walk. And the gospel is preached. Jesus never answered the question. But he, demonstra- he, he answered it in saying, here's the, here's the proof. Here's the power. And then he said this. This is what I want you to hear. He said this. Blessed is he. This is one of the Beatitudes. Blessed is he whosoever shall not be what? Say it. Say it. Offended. Offended in me. And brothers and sisters, I want to I challenge each of us when we suffer to be careful not to assume or be offended that God is in some way forgetting us or doing something he, he ought not to be doing or maybe not doing something he ought to be doing. His healing power, he came and healed all the diseases. Three million people he touched. <clears throat> but you know all those people died at some point. Jesus did not eradicate the problems. He came to demonstrate his power. His healing power is for demonstration of who he is so we might come into his kingdom. It's not to eradicate the problems. Not yet. He's going to do that. He's going to do that. Be patient. Eternity's coming. And it's not that far away. Don't be offended in the way he does his business. But remember this. He proved his power by demonstrating he had, he had, he had jurisdiction, if you will, over depravity, disease, demons, nature, death, eternal damnation. Jesus proved he has power over it all. And he is a kingdom. He is a king worthy of our worship. And he is a king uh, who has a kingdom that you ought to want to become a part of. Proclaiming his power. Third thing in your notes. That is the motivation. The king's motivation is compassion. We see a pursuing king proclaiming a powerful kingdom. And now look at the text. He saw the crowds. When he saw the crowds, by the way, uh, I looked up, uh, I counted a number of words. Well, I did a search. I didn't count. The number of times the word crowds comes up in the Gospels. Um, I forget. There's a lot. There's a theme in the Gospels, especially in Matthew, about Jesus drawing crowds and Jesus speaking and reaching into the crowds, is pursuing God, is going after crowds of people. And when he sees them, he's moved with compassion. Well, what what does that mean, to be moved with compassion? The Hebrew uh, culture talked about compassion being in the gut, the liver, the kidney, the bowels. 
And what this is, is describing is an intense emotion that has physiological out, outworkings to the point that the text, here's what actually happened. The disciples, watch this, the disciples are standing looking at Jesus. They're recognizing that the crowds are around them, and Jesus literally feels pain in his gut to the point he, he doubles over and bursts into tears. That's what compassion looks like. It is an intense physical emotion. It's an intense emotion that ex- is expressed physiologically. And by the way, just so you, you think about what is, uh, what is emotion, what is it, what's it for? Think about the word emotion. It's energy to give you the ability to move. God gives us emotion so that we are energized to do stuff, to respond. And in this case, compassion is energy that draws us into the person's problem so that we do something for them to alleviate their suffering or to help them in their suffering. So here's Jesus demonstrating that he is a compassionate God. You know, it strikes me that oftentimes people think of, uh, of the Old Testament God being uh, a God of harshness, judgment, uh, angry kind of a God. And then they talk about the New Testament, Jesus being your friend, kind and loving, and he holds kids. Well, Ezekiel, or Exodus chapter 34 is the first formal introduction God gives us of who he is. He's talking to Moses. Exodus 34 says this, The Lord descended in the crowd and stood with him, Moses, there, and proclaimed himself. And he said, The Lord, the Lord God, listen to what he says about himself. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's God introducing himself. Jesus demonstrates physically in person what it looks like for a God who who searches and pursues people to feel pain. And the, the disciples better get it. He's teaching them something. What's he upset about? Why is Jesus so emotional? Back to the text. He saw the crowd. He had compassion on them because, because, that answers the question why, because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus wasn't, by the way, this is the first uh, description of Jesus' emotion in in Matthew's gospel. All the way into chapter 9. Till he actually describes Jesus having any kind of emotion. Now we know he did. I just think it's interesting. This is the first time Matthew describes it. His compassion is because these this people condition of their hearts. Listen, listen to a definition of harassment. They were harassed. It means, again, I love the, the Greek language, although I'm not, a, I'm not a, a Greek scholar. I just read what other people write, so don't be impressed. But I love Greek language because it's, well, Pastor Matt Morgan told me this, uh, reading the English is like watching a, uh, a tube black screen TV. Reading the Greek is like watching a big screen high def color TV. 
And I, th I think he's right. It's a great, great picture. Listen to what it says. <clears throat> harassed means they were bruised, mangled, worn out, exhausted, beleaguered, will, bewildered. And Jesus is looking at, look at, look at, he's looking at their soul condition, their mind condition, their emotional condition, and that's what breaks his heart. And so many of us forget that the God who created us is intimately pursuing and really, really knows how you feel and is deeply moved when you are hurting. And he demonstrates it here. Helpless means they're helpless. Thrown down like sheep without a shepherd. You realize when a, a sheep gets, a, his wool gets very long and he gets wet and falls down, he can't get up. He is totally unable to get up. And a sheep without a shepherd is a dead sheep. Sheep are dumb. Do you know that a bird can land on a sheep's head and peck his eyes out and he will never do anything? That's how dumb Jesus calls us. He calls us sheep. It's not complimentary. When we, a sheep falls down, he cannot get up. And guess what? The good shepherd cares for his sheep and is really upset here because these people, it's a, like sheep without a shepherd, that phrase is referring to their emotional state. And Jesus is looking into your heart and he's saying, I know how you feel and that grieves me. They felt like sheep without a shepherd. And that upset Jesus. Why? Well, he's not just because he's compassionate. He's compassionate for because of his character. And we see a picture of his character about sheep who are broken in Ezekiel. Let me read it. Verse 30, or chapter 34 in Ezekiel says this. To the shepherds who aren't shepherding their sheep. So elders, fellow elders, we need to listen up. This is a stunningly difficult passage to preach on. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed my sheep. Now, what is Jesus or God concerned about? Listen, see if you find yourself in this. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not sought after and brought them back, and the lost you have not sought. You see, the God of the universe, the Old Testament God, who is compassionate, is compassionate for the sick, the lost, the weak, the strayed, the broken, he is concerned. And that includes every one of you. You cannot walk out of this room and say that your God does not care. You can't. And so, pastor, elder, get busy. And when people hurt, you better hurt and you better run to their aid. Dads, you're right with me. When your wife is hurting, you better be shepherding. When your kids are wondering who Jesus is, you better know the king to introduce them. 
care group leader, you got people in your group that are hurting, God is going to expect you to care for the hurt, the sick, the weak, the lost. Christian, if you have been pursued by God like Joan pursued me, then you, myself included, we better be looking for lost people. See, there's not a person in this room that doesn't have some kind of responsibility. Now, granted, if you're immature in your faith, if you're struggling in your faith, not today. I'm not saying do it today. But we ought to be looking in that direction to be growing in that direction. God is a God of compassion. Jesus Christ shows his compassion physiologically, and he demonstrates it to the disciples. So what does that, what does that teach us? Two things. I want you to think about compassion here before I move on. Number one is this. I have a king who can be touched with the feelings of my infirmities. And Hebrews 4 tells me, because I know that King Jesus hurts for me, I can run to him when I'm hurting. Come boldly to the throne of grace. This is a great king. But he says, come, 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 come. Come to me when you hurt. Because I care. And I'm deeply, deeply moved. When you hurt, I know about your emotional struggle, and that bothers me. If, if King Christ is, is saying to you, come to me, then also, if we're going to be like Christ, then we ought to be pursuing other people who need compassion. The power of human touch is, in, is intensely um, profound. You know, if you had a, a, a set of twins and you had one twin that you loved and held and nurtured and, and just coddled all the time and you had the other twin where all you did was feed it, give it diapers and put it in the crib and nothing else, you know what would happen? Research tells us that this baby's brain would have wiring that would be intense. The dendrites, it makes, you get more dendrites the more you hold a baby. The more, brain, the more you hold a baby, the more brain context, uh, connections you get. So the intelligence of your child is somewhat uh, developed by the way you hold that baby. Uh, and it's, that, I think that's why natural Jesus lovers want to hold kids. You just, don't you just want to hug them? But this baby over here will either become very limited or die. Human touch is profoundly important. And we see as Jesus went throughout the villages, he touched people all the time. Human touch is incredibly, incredibly important and powerful. And it's a way to express compassion to other people. And so Christ-like compassion is an emotion that touches the very core of one's being. It creates an intense inner feeling which, quote, should always lead to outward, compassionate acts of mercy and kindness. The results of compassion is mercy and kindness and acts of serving. I was in Jamaica 10 years ago with a uh, group of college career kids, and uh, they had asked me uh, to, to prepare devotions for, uh, for nine days based on this passage. And when they asked me that, the first thing I thought of was, how can I take one verse and make devotions for nine days in one verse? Well, trust me, there's a whole lot more than nine days worth in this passage. 
on the way on the, on the plane down and on the on the ride into the mountains uh, to, to our our uh, deaf village, I kept praying, God help me, help me teach these kids. I want them to see the magnitude of this passage. It is profound. Help me do it. I had no idea what he was up to, but the next day we ended up in the infirmary like a barracks with beds lined on each side and one person to care for over 30 people in this, in this one building. Well, you can imagine the condition that these people were in. Uh, it was just, it was stunning. And our group began to sing to them and with them and, and those that could joined us in singing, but I sat on the bed of uh, an old crippled man and I put my arm around him I held his hand. The guy next to me scooted off of his bed and reached over to touch me. And the power of human touch was intense that moment. I couldn't sing. I was so full of emotion. You talk about feeling gut pain of compassion. I started to get it. And as I was doing that, a 102-year-old man in the bed next to me, it took about five minutes to walk around to come. He wanted me to touch him. And so here I was, in the midst of tears, lump in my throat, trying to touch three men with two hands and trying not to completely lose it because they were so broken. That's the idea of compassion. But that ought to turn into ministry of acts of kindness. And that's what I'm pleading with you today is to look across this church and ask yourself, who is broken that I could minister to? Who in my community is broken that I could care for? Who can I touch literally or physically to help? Well, that leads us to the next part of our text, the last part of your outline. Jesus, the king's ministry transition begins with my prayers that 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 offends me when i'm not thinking renewed thinking look at the text jesus he looks at the crowds he's filled with compassion or harassed like sheep without a shepherd verse 37 then he excuse me says to his disciples the harvest is plentiful the laborers are few therefore pray earnestly to the lord of the harvest that he would send workers into his harvest i'm thinking like john the baptist I'm thinking, wait a minute. You care. You have all this power, and you're telling us to pray? The Lord of the harvest? Doesn't, why don't you just fix the problem? This doesn't make sense to me. See what I mean by being offended by the way the king runs his business? It's different than what we think. But if this king, here's, here's a major takeaway today, this great king... God, suffering servant, perfect man, total power. The way he handles the problem that breaks his heart as he looks at you and he says, on your knees and pray. Pray the Lord, beg the Lord of the harvest that he would throw out the workers into this harvest so that God gets the harvest that he died for. He is calling you and and me to care enough to invest in prayer and go get people like Joan. Like Joan. She did this. She cared for me. 
enough to pray for me and pray and pray and pray. And then she cared enough to come and find me and touch me and invite me. And she had developed a relationship with me. I knew it was because she loved me. So here's the disciples. I'm way over time. Sorry, Mike. Here's the disciples. Listen to me. They see this. They're stunned. You're going to pray? You're going to tell me to pray? They saw how you came to the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. You developed character in the Sermon on the Mount. You come to right relationship through repentance and faith. Sermon on the Plain, they saw you live in right relationship in charity or love. Live, uh, uh, be like Jesus, character. Love like Jesus, charity. Now you do ministry like Jesus with compassion. And they start to get this transition now is away from Jesus being the center of the ministry to now it's our turn to get involved and we've got to take it from here. The baton at, at chapter 9, verse 37 and 8, the baton is turning from Jesus to the disciples. And you and I are supposed to keep carrying this until kingdom comes, totally. So bottom line, pray. Pray for the lost. Pray for the hurting. Get to know people intimately enough so that you start to get the gut feel of compassion and pity for where they are and how much they hurt. And be ready. Because in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, he calls his disciple and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Remember, not eradicating it. He's just proving his power. Not eradicating, proving his power. And then in verse 5, he sends, sends them out. Go. Jesus, answer to the needs of this broken world, to the people caught in the grave pits of depravity, is your prayer and your willingness to go when he starts to thrust you into places you are uncomfortable to go. Brothers and sisters, we have a robust king and a gospel that will touch and heal anything that you face. Sometimes Jesus doesn't do it that way, though. Sometimes it's through hardship and one-on-one -on -one messy ministry, tears, brokenness, but one-on-one -on -one loving one another with compassion. Let's go share the gospel with that kind of confidence and compassion.